I'm Ben, and you're listening to the Sound Logic Podcast. This is Mike. Each episode, we discuss one of music's greatest albums from Rolling Stone Magazine's Top 500 list. Brought to you by two guys with no credentials. Welcome to the Sound Logic Podcast. What album are we listening to today, Asher? Today we're listening to Neverbind by Nirvana. If you haven't listened to part one yet, go back and do so. This is part two. <laughs> what? <laughs> it's true. I think we made the right call. Are you going to stay here with us? Bye. All right, give my ice cream back. Bye. So enough of that. He's going to steal my job. <laughs> okay. So other than Smells Like Teen Spirit, Rob, <laughs> give, us, give, us some of, give us some of your... Uh, some of your favorite tracks, top tracks from Rob Jones. Go. Well, I think if I were to make my my 17-year-old version mixtape of myself and I had to pick three or four tracks, um, I think obviously It Smells Like Teen Spirit would be, be right up there. Um, after that, I'd probably go to Come As You Are, um, Lithium, and I'd probably have to pick between depending on the day you ask me uh, on a plane or something in the way um, and I think that's a pretty diverse sort of cross-section of what this album has to offer but yeah that, that's probably what's the top of my list great picks no arguments here well uh, it, it is interesting to me that you picked something in the way because it has a very different feel than almost all the other tracks on the album can you say something about why that one well, stands out to you? I, I think it's it's almost out of respect for the album, and and it's as you said, it, it's got a very when you play that track, it's like somebody's taking you doing a hundred hundred and twenty k on the highway, and you're downshifted immediately into a different gear. But I think I feel like at least that's what Cobain was after, um, because. I mean, it would be great to have 13 tracks of Smells Like Teen Spirit living rock with, in my at least opinion, relatively cryptic or meaningless lyrics. But I feel like after five or six of them, I'd, I'd sort of say, okay, I get this album. I'm good. I'm ready to move on. And, and that's not what he's done. And especially given the fact that he's choosing to end the album with that track. Um, I think that that's, that's sort of a message he's chosen to send. And I'm still trying to figure out exactly what that message is. But I think it's, it's more to respect that, that this is an incredibly diverse album um, that, that I feel like I feel like it's important to include that, I should say. Yeah, I, I respect that. Ben, do you have any favorites here and songs that jump out to you? Yeah, um, I don't know if this just never came through in my listenings with friends, but Territorial Pissings, which has such a great name, I don't think I ever caught that it's got that uh, very familiar refrain kind of screamed silently at the beginning from uh, the song uh, Get Together by the Youngbloods. Um, it just totally was lost on me. And yeah, me too. Uh, <laughs> wouldn't have said that that was the intro to a Nirvana song. I think the song sounded <laughs> fairly familiar, but um, that was a that was something that caught me on this listen. I think "On a Plane" is the one that um, 
if I had to pick a favorite song on the album, uh, it's probably the one that, that stands out to me most. Uh, Come As You Are just feels like learning the electric guitar. Just that, that, just over and over. Just, uh, I, I feel like calling my parents up and being like, I'm sorry, you had to put up with <laughs> that silly little refrain over and over. I think I want to say, uh, I tried to listen to the second half of the album more. Or I tried to, because sometimes it's hard to just have enough time just to listen to a whole album all the way through. So a few times when I listened to the album, I tried to start maybe halfway through, maybe at Territorial Pissings. Um just because I feel like I was less familiar with that. Uh, but even though I did that, the first five tracks to me mm. are the ones I want to listen to over and over and over again. So after Smells Like Teen Spirit, In Bloom, Come As You Are, uh, Breed, and Lithium. Uh, I love them all. And I've always liked In Bloom. And I, when I was a kid, I always really, really liked the video, the music video, because they're like on an old school um like ed sullivan type show it's black and white and they're dressed up very beatles-esque um with smiling faces um you know especially for the chorus which is again that more clean sound until he hits the overdrive in the in the verse it just starts screaming and then in the video they start like kind of coming undone on stage, you know, and kicking the drum set over and everything. And I love that. Yeah, I thought it was hilarious. Um, but I've always really, really liked the song. And when I listen to it now, I still have that kind of uh, image in my head, that dichotomy of kind of that kind of fluffy sounding chorus with a really crunchy sounding verse. Sorry, other way around. Fluffy sounding verse yeah. with a really crunchy chorus. Uh, it was really cool. Of course, come as you are, and um, you guys are guitar guys too. It wasn't until later in the '90s when I looked back that I realized how much chorus effect uh, bands used in the '90s. I almost like didn't notice it at the time, and then I guess in the 2000s when we're playing guitar and playing around with different effects, <laughs> you put the chorus on, you're like, "Ooh, that sounds weird." I don't like that sound, and then all that's all they used. Like, think about. Um, uh, Program and black hole. Of it. Well, black hole sun. Oh, Soundgarden. They love their chorus. Oh, it's like tons of chorus. Almost too much now when I think about it. But then you know, listen to "Come as You Are." Like that whole riff is like a lot of chorus on that um, chorus effect on that sound. But again, that riff so simple and like everybody who had a guitar, you know, school or youth group, whatever, was trying to play yeah. that riff because it was so easy. And it's like I can play that. <laughs> It's a number one hit, and and I know how to do it. Um, and then um, I wasn't as familiar with Polly, and I listened to it more. It's it's, um, I've I've listened yeah. to the lyric. It's it's disturbing. It's deep. Um, and yeah, I'm not saying I have a problem with that because I think that a lot of the pop in the '90s and into the next two decades really ignore the dark side of society, the dark side of, of teen society and that 
when you don't address certain things, they don't disappear. Um, we have to, we have to at least acknowledge that there's a darker side to humanity and to youth. And I think that when we do that, not to glorify it, but we at least give a, a make a space to talk about it. Um, so. A lot of this album and Nirvana and a lot of the other acts from the 90s, alt rock, not pop, but alt rock, uh, Pearl Jam and Soundgarden and Pumpkins, it addresses some of the some of the tough stuff and some of the dark stuff that goes on. And we have to address it. Again, we don't have to glorify it, but we have to talk about it. Uh, it, it doesn't give us a space to to deal with any of those issues and help kids or parents or anybody who's dealing with that. So. Polly's one that was hard for me to listen to because it is, it's it's very clever. It's it's well written, I think, but it is disturbing. Um, so I found it uh, alluring in that way, and it was one that caused me to really focus and digest it further. So I like that as well. I think that's enough. Otherwise, I'm just going to talk about every single one. Yeah. Well. I think it's it's important as well, and and now getting into a bit of history, there was a there was a biography of Kurt Cobain released in I think 2001. Um, I forget his first name, but the author's name was Cross, and he uh, he interviewed all members of the band, and basically everybody who knew uh, Cobain, um, and and Dave Grohl is quoted as. Uh, being pulled by Kurt Cobain, basically, and I'm paraphrasing, is that music comes first and lyrics come second, and that that was his shift. And then he he also complained a lot um, that, and there was a quote in the book, and he said basically he he's so Cobain was so upset that he kept getting music critics asking him and grilling him about the meaning behind his songs. And half the time he'd say, I just needed a word that rhymed with brown. And he'd just throw mm. something in that didn't really, at times, have deeper meaning to it. Um, because that his his philosophy behind his music was, was often heavily focused uh, musically and less so lyrically. Yeah. Interesting. I'm sure there's tracks there are exceptions to that. Well, I mean, back to Pauly, just as an example. I mean, it does, there, I think... There are some lines that I can see him doing that, like just putting a word in there, but it's still, it, it's a narrative. Like it yeah. does tell a story, um, uh, which I think is poignant. There's this quote from, um, I think Amy Mann or someone like that, who, uh, who says that my songs mean whatever the listener wants them to mean. Um, like the best, the best music mm. is when you just sort of let it flow and let the audience interpret it. Um, it once you try, once you try and make people get meaning from your music, uh, it all falls apart. And I like that idea that like the artist is just the one painting the picture. It's up to the people listening to to come up with their own damn interpretation of it, you know, <laughs> rather than trying to think that you have to interpret every interpret the many layers of what Kurt Cobain was actually thinking when he was writing. Hmm. Any other comments on any tracks, guys, before we move on? Uh, just to say, I was surprised here. You say the uh, hidden track is a late add-on, so it wasn't on the original? It, it was 
it was on the original, but it was a it was truly a secret track. You had to listen to ten minutes of silence before it got to it. So the last track was twenty minutes long. And then on later pressings, they gave it. And I mean, I guess really we're talking about CDs because, well, maybe on vinyl too, they just got rid of that silence. But on CDs, I think later copies, according to what I read, included it as you know, it just went right to another track, a thirteenth track where the earlier ones only had twelve. So what? Yes, it was there on the original. We've talked about a lot of memories. Um, any other memories? I think we've kind of gone through a lot of that, but anything else we missed? I've I've got an obscure one. I don't know if you want to include this or not, but... We love obscure. <laughs> let's have it. Yeah, that's like, that's our MO. So we both, all three of us, grew up in a, in a little community in Southern Ontario that had an outdoor pool. You guys remember that pool? Yep. Yeah. So that, that pool had the world's hottest, sharpest gravel stones in the driveway. And you would go there and you would wait. And you would wait in the peltering sun because your parents would give you a dollar to get into the pool from open to close. And so inevitably, you'd always go down there with your towel and your bathing suit. And that was it. Because God forbid you left your shoes in the change room, you'd be dead. So standing <laughs> on this this gravel surface with your feet burning, I ended up going into the change room to drop my towel or something. And that's when that, about the time that Sony Discman were around, and they were they were relatively popular. So there was a kid who didn't know what to do with his discman because he had it in the change room and he didn't want to leave it in the change room. And uh, this was a, a friend of a friend of a friend. I kind of knew who he was. And I said, what are you going to do with your disc, man? He said, uh, I don't know. I might take it onto the deck. Do you want to listen to it? And I said, what are you listening to? And he held up a CD. And it was my first glimpse ever of the Nevermind album cover. And I just had this little <laughs> four-month-old baby penis just staring me in the face <laughs> at nine years old, and I did not know what to do with that. <laughs> That's funny. Uh, did did you guys go? Did you go and listen to it? Uh, yeah, I did. Uh, that was probably my first introduction to that album as well. Wow. <laughs> That's but, cool. Uh, yeah, I also wanted to swim, so I spent a little bit of time listening, a little bit of time swimming. He was kind of hoping I would babysit his disc man the whole time. So I'm sure I killed those two double A batteries in about three minutes and then jumped in the pool. (laughs) They didn't last. They didn't last long in those early ones. Nope. I wonder um, about you you said that uh, small town community we grew up in, Rob. I wonder how. What is the what are the words that I'm looking for here? There was something about the grunge scene that resonated so much in small towns where people didn't feel like anything was happening. Um, I know Nirvana was big enough that they, you know, made a big impact in large cities as well, but I think Kurt Cobain was speaking to bored kids who smoked on the corner of the parking lot uh, and thought that their life was just going to be nothing in an incredible and powerful and moving way. Like, 
yeah, you know, years, you know, we were in high school several years after his death. People were still wearing Nirvana shirts and Kurt Cobain t-shirts. Oh, yeah. It was like a voice that, that even after he had died, it continued to live on. Um, and I wonder how much of that was just... He, he gave he gave some voice to the helplessness of small town rural communities there's a nugget of something there that I don't know what to do with uh, I think I mean a lot of artists who come from nothing are this but um, Kurt was the guy that you and I know it was the style in the 90s but he was the guy that you could associate with you he was the yeah. guy if there's a girl next door he was the guy next door uh, he was wearing sweaters and t-shirts and you know uh, zip up old man sweaters um, and you know bleach blonde hair which everyone had uh, who was you know in their mid to late teens at that time and uh, when he was interviewed Ben have you got your uh, your sensor sound ready uh-huh. uh, when he was interviewed he didn't give a um, he was not that impressed and he was the guy who uh, just wanted to play his guitar and I think that the kids who really didn't know where their life was going, uh, he was their guy. He could, they yeah. could associate with him and they could align themselves with him. And I don't think, don't, I think we could debate this, but I don't think he let the fame get to his head. I think a lot of other things got to his head, but the fame in terms of, you know, he never, was he driving around in, you know, Corvettes and Ferraris and that kind of stuff? I, no, I don't think so. That side of it that we see so much now, uh, I don't remember really seeing that in the media with Kurt. Um, not to say that they didn't make any money, because I think he made a lot of money. Um, but I think he was that guy that everyone, and people in small towns who really didn't know what yeah. what they were going to do and who were bored, uh, he's just like me, you know? Um Feel free, feel free to debate that, but that's what I see when I look back. Again, being a little young at the time, but looking back, that's what I see. Ben, you mentioned, and I, I think I've... I don't think I have this album anymore, but you mentioned Weird Al... Um, <laughs> What's the name of it again? I forget. Yeah, smells like Nirvana. Was that the name of the song? Yeah, that was the name of the and, spoof of Smells Like Teen Spirit. Right, and the song was Smells Like Nirvana, but the album... <laughs> what was the album? Was it whatever? Oh. Off the Deep End. There's <laughs> a Weird Al cover of him doing the pool thing. That's well, that's, a, that, that's, that's the album that it was on. Is, and the cover is him naked in the pool swimming towards, I think it's a donut, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and you can't see his, his, uh, his private parts, no. um, uh, which is good. Uh, uh, but, um, I mean, that, see, that resonated with me way more than Nirvana because that was... Uh, you know, it's a type of humor uh, that that I got that I thought was really funny. 
Um, I was probably more familiar with Smells Like Nirvana than Smells Like Teen Spirit at the time. <laughs> and it only came out a year after um, Nevermind. So he was like riding the wave <laughs> yeah. big time. <laughs> um, so yeah, I have I have a lot of fond memories of, of Weird Al and certainly of that song. I always think when I hear Smells Like Teen Spirit and some of the lyrics are hard to here and smells like teen spirit but i always think of uh it's hard to narco bargles out with all these marbles in my mouth (laughs) 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 which is from the the weird al parody so anyways (laughs) i guess one of my comments and i think we've all said this tonight but um i appreciate nirvana way more now than i did when they were active and that maybe that's an age thing or retrospect thing but I think that if I was 18 or 20 when it came out, I would have been one of the diehards. Um, you know, it just it resonates much more as an adult mm. and as someone who's looking back on what the late 80s and early 90s were. It, it's it's more it's more relevant mm. to me now, which is a great segue to. Uh, another question we love to ask uh, is this is this album still relevant and does it sound dated? Uh, Rob, why don't you start us off on this one? Well, I would say absolutely and absolutely not at the same time. And that's to each of your questions. (laughs) (laughs) It, it absolutely is still relevant and it absolutely does not sound dated. I feel like if you took a kid that was in their late teens and had no exposure to this music in the past. Not that I have any idea how that would be possible once they crawled out from under their rock. If you stuck it on right. a modern rock uh, radio station in any city in North America, you'd see their head bopping along to it the same way yep. that that was the case in 1992. So I think mm-hmm. I think it it still is definitely still relevant. Um, and as you alluded to earlier, I still think that this speaks very personally to to a huge cohort of of people that that haven't quite found their spot. They feel a little disconnected, and and a lot of the lyrics that that you find, and a lot of the emotion that drives the lyrics, just resonates, and it resonates with people that that feel that sort of separation and alienation. And, and as such, when it, when the music doesn't necessarily sound dated and granted, this is the most recent music that we have on your list so far. Um, I, I think both of those things definitely place them, place them in a state of relevance for today. Ben, um, any comments? This album is absolutely relevant if at the very least for the way that it changed music and the way that it made this sort of obscure sound uh, pop music too. I think you forget how popular this weird, crunchy, power chord driven stuff was. Um, What I I think I'm struggling with is uh, separating myself from it enough to figure out if it sounds dated I don't like to think about the early '90s as being a long time ago, but it <laughs> it was, 
And I think when you put this on, it sounds like flannel and ripped jeans. Uh, you <laughs> What's know, it, flannel and ripped jeans sound like, man? <laughs> it, it, this is what it is. This is like, this is the early 90s. Um, so I think it is quite dated. And I, I don't know that I agree with you, Rob, that if you threw this, you know, brand new band no one had ever heard of on the radio today that anyone would listen. I just don't think, uh, I think it's a little bit too simple. I, we were listening to it this morning and I said to Meredith, just kind of off the hand, offhand, like this is monotonous. Each song is three power chords and a guy kind of droning on and on. I love it because I remember, uh, the feeling of it as a teenager, but, I'm not sure that it holds up all that well. Um, hmm. I think it's a icon in music history. <clears throat> and I think it's really important to remember. And I think it's influence has continued on. Um, and I think it's, it's angry and aggressive enough that it still pulls at something inside of me. And probably, you know, anyone who would be brand new to it would be compelled by that same driving rhythm but I don't know that it's actually great music. <laughs> I, I think this yeah. needs to be here for its influence and not for yes. the perfection, uh, you know, this thing that was created that was, that was perfect. Totally agree. So, so I think that sort of makes me feel like there probably is some aspect of this that does feel dated or sound dated or something like that. What about you, Mike? You might need to break the tie here. Yeah, I'm gonna well, I'm gonna kind of fall somewhere in the middle. Oh, um, there he is. <laughs> uh, Go get Steve. He's only a few blocks away. <laughs> uh, Steve doesn't listen to Nirvana. <laughs> um, okay, I think that it is relevant, and I think it's both musically and lyrically very relevant. I think that even though we don't want to talk about all the things in this album, they still are relevant issues and we need to talk about it. And I think that as you know, Rob, you'll know this as a, as a high school teacher, um, mental health issues and dealing with mental health issues and the frequency of mental health issues, especially in teens is, is much higher or at very least much more talked about. But I think you and I have discussed recently, it's a lot higher occurrences than than it was even 20 years ago so we need to talk about these issues especially with um you know with what what happened occurred in the end uh so i think lyrically it's still very relevant um in terms of the sound is it dated uh and i guess i'm gonna argue with you a little bit here ben i think I think I'd land closer to Rob in terms of the sound. I think that a song like Smells Like Teen Spirit, um, you hear a lot of those guitar sounds still in rock music today. Um, so I think that Teen Spirit would still probably go over very well if if you could play it to an audience that had never heard it before. Um, we had another guest on before who said that music is still... It, it stands the test of time when those instruments are still being played in the same way and the same instruments are being used. So 
in, in that light, and I agree with that comment in that light, I think a lot of the guitar sounds are still used. When I hear a song like Come As You Are and hear the chorus sound, um, I think that is a little dated. And I think that that would set it, you know, uh, yeah. really fix it in the 90s. And even though, and, and again, it's hard for me because I love Come As You Are. It's a great song yeah. and, and I love listening to it. It doesn't bother me that the chorus is there and I think chorus is very cheesy and I don't like using it when I play electric guitar. Um, but it's, uh, it sounds great. I think some of the sounds are a little dated, but a lot of it um, would yeah. carry over very well. So I'm going to be Switzerland here and just kind of sit <laughs> neutral in the middle. Um, but I, I think for the most part, a lot of it has carried over. Yeah. I, I love what you said there, uh, Mike, about the lyrical content needs to be heard. Um, I think about, like, I think the tension that I'm feeling is that the music people are consuming right now, this generation that's dealing with so much mental health anxiety and, um, just intense pressure they need nirvana in their lives i think because what uh, yeah, they're, i agree what they're drawn to instead is sort of like candy coated uh, yep. i don't know what's a good example that's probably mean to pick on anyone but ariana grande just seems like someone that like you listen to that because you don't want to have to think about the pain that you're in um yeah so i it, i think that's why i feel like it won't play well because i think people are turning to music at this moment in time to sort of escape from reality and to have this sort of like, if I just yeah. keep saying everything's fine, then everything is fine kind of moment. Whereas I think Nirvana does the exact opposite. It's like, you think your life is okay. Let me pour out my soul and tell you like how much things are terrible. Um, and there's something really, <laughs> yeah. there's something really cathartic in that practice. And I don't think that that's, the way <laughs> that's not what pop no. music is doing right now no it's it's it, you're you're right it's not popular right now i guess maybe then what i meant more was we need it um we need it yeah i th i think it's relevant it i think it's relevant because we need it um, but i think one of the things as well that makes it relevant is the fact that we know the end of the story we know mm. yeah sure yeah and that's what I think about too. Like I can't think, I can't think about these lyrics separate for for the end of the story. And and I think that that's and this is the teacher side of me coming out. It's when we see the end of the story and we see the pathway, we we can pull out the warning signs and we can say, what can we do here? How do we support? And and I think that that opens the dialogue that that as you alluded to is incredibly necessary to have. Um, but I think without being separated from the end of the story and having perspective on that, it loses some of that power. And it, if, if the pathway to recovery for Kurt Cobain was different, would it still have the same, the same impact and the same messaging and I don't know the answer to that. Yeah. It's a tough one. It's just... Well, I think you can look at some parallel artists. Um, with, you know, Pearl Jam maybe being the one exception. I don't think anyone's really listening to the artists we've already named. Soundgarden, Stone Temple Pilots, yeah. Smashing Pumpkins. They're all kind of fading into the distance. Um, yeah. Even, even a band like the Foo Fighters, which... Um, sort of evolved out of the ashes we'll call them the phoenix of of nirvana 
Um, they're still releasing some great music, but that style and the messaging is very different. Oh yeah. Much more polished and poppy and yeah. Yeah. It casts, it definitely casts a wider net for yeah. sure. Yeah. It would be interesting to see if Nirvana would have followed a similar trajectory to what became Foo Fighters. Um, I don't know. We'll never know that, but, uh, well, I think it's fairly widely reported that, that Dave Grohl and, and Kurt Cobain had some creative differences that were, were quite, I don't want to say public because what happened behind studio recording doors in the early nineties didn't end up on Snapchat, Instagram, Facebook, and everything else. But I think they were both open about the fact that, that they're, their musical tastes lyrically and stylistically were, were fairly competing. And I think that that really sort of suppressed some of Grohl's influence. Um, and, and you can see, see that through, um, well, definitely not from the first album bleach. Cause he wasn't with them. It was a, a drummer named Chad Channing's at the time or Chad Channing. Um, but I don't think he's credited with much, uh, musical writing in the first uh, the second, third, and fourth album at all. Um, that primarily is yeah. is Cobain's brainchild. Yeah, for sure. <clears throat> I, on that note, I just I want to say that for something that was so new and maybe to our kids wouldn't be relevant when I compare it to the Velvet Underground, for example, uh, this recording from a production standpoint is much more polished. There are some some funny sounds and some weird, you know, yelling everybody get together you know at the beginning of a song but it's it's quite well produced um it's it's fairly clean in terms of the the songs themselves with some kind of a little bit of experimental stuff but i i i like the production value of it yeah everything's in tune it's almost like the the grunge which i love the grungy attitude was kind of like post edited in, in the studio um yeah, it wasn't. It wasn't. They were performing on half wonky gear. Uh, <laughs> Do you guys know how that title of their like feature track smells like Teen Spirit? Do you know where that comes from? Uh, I read something about that. Um, it's today, not hanging on the eighth grade dance floor. Uh, nope, definitely not. Although that is definitely a reference that you could uh, you could make some guys to. You don't want to stink, right? I did read about that, and then but Nora told me a story a few weeks ago about it, uh, which conflicts with what I read. So, so what have you heard, uh, Rob? So it, it it's a reference to a band, another band, sort of, um, that became quite linked with Nirvana called Bikini Kill. So this was uh, girl punk, and I, it was about 1990, I think, that Cobain started dating um, a, a girl who was a founding member of this band, Bikini Kill. Um, her name was Toby Vale, and then when Grohl ended up replacing. Um, his predecessor on the drums, he started dating another member of Bikini Kill. Uh, I forget her last name, but her name was Hannah. 
So those two ended up, two members of Nirvana and two members of uh, Bikini Kill were dating. So it was fairly short-lived between Toby and Kurt. So they split, um, stayed relatively amicable, um, but had split. While Meanwhile, Grohl and Hannah were still dating. So Teen Spirit was a fairly popular um, antiperspirant or deodorant in the early 90s. I haven't seen it in about 15 years. I'm sure it's defunct by now. Um, But that was the deodorant that Toby Vale wore. So one one night, apparently, after a a good night out on the town, Dave Grohl um, and his girlfriend Hannah went back um, to the apartment, to Kurt Cobain's apartment. He wasn't there. And Hannah thought it would be a great idea to spray paint on his wall, Kurt Cobain smells like teen spirit, as a reference to him being with um, Toby Vale. Um, (laughs) So he thought, he read that and thought, you know what? This would be a great name for a song. (laughs) And apparently that was an influence um, over the direction that, that that album took, the entire Nevermind album, because... There's a very big difference between their first and their second album between some of those darker themes and, and anger because that that relationship between Toby Vale and, and Kurt Cobain apparently didn't end that well, even though they were able to be somewhat amicable towards one another. Um, there was a, quite a bit of resent, resentment felt by Cobain uh, towards Toby Vale. So that, that sort of influenced some of those self-hatred and loathing and some of the themes that you see repeated through the album. But I thought that was an interesting story when I, when I had read about that. That's, that's cool. Yeah. That, that is the story that I read as well. That's really funny. And he, and he claimed that he didn't know, like he saw them write that and, and thought it was really cool. And he said he didn't know that it was deodorant until after the song came out. So he just (laughs) thought it was a new slogan. (laughs) Uh, talk about people living under a rock yeah right uh oh that's cool i like that i'm actually rob i'm glad you brought that up because i had wanted to talk about some of the story behind that name which is kind of a cool it's a cool name too like it's something that we remember as part of our youth definitely okay so last question uh, this is number 17 on the top 500 list. Was this position sound logic? Who, who's going to start us off? I should really start by saying I can't believe we made it to number 17. It's amazing. <laughs> uh, I think this is a. I'm, I am looking forward to hearing your review of top of the 492nd <laughs> album. So don't, don't get too excited about making it to 17. Oh, wow. Uh, uh, an aside i texted some friends this morning um we've had a lack of female guests on so i've I've been trying to find some and and was like oh man i really like album number 249 i was like uh well that'll be like five years from now (laughs) we'll keep you posted okay (laughs) uh but all, all that to say yeah i think this is a great location for this album um you know, my little bit of beef with it perhaps not holding up real well from just a raw sound. Uh, I'm willing to get over that. It's probably because this is music that's from 
uh, more recent history. Um, I, I would put it above some of the albums that come before it. I'm curious how it will stack up with a few other albums from uh, the last 25 years. Uh, yeah, I'm really curious to see how that will take shape. The last 35 years, I should say. I'm I'm perfectly okay with it being 17. Um, again, when I'm when I'm looking through the top 17, there's not a lot of misses. There's there's definitely one, but <laughs> there's I, I might move it a spot or two. I I I maybe argue about maybe pushing something like the Velvet Underground up a spot. Um, and, and creating a bit of room a, a couple spots lower. Um, but I think, as we've all made reference to, a lot of these albums, you've got to take them at face value, lyrically and musically, at their point in time. But you've also we've got the pe- benefit of looking back on their influence. And I think the biggest reason why this, this cracks the top mm-hmm. 20 is it opened an entire genre. Um, to a wider audience. Um, and even if that is 20 and it's a couple spots lower, that that's still an incredible accomplishment to be able to say that you, you took a genre and pushed it to the masses. So yeah, I'm, I'm totally okay with 17. Well, as I like to say, I I would have it at least one (laughs) higher. Um, and I, listen, I, I love the Beatles. Um, you know, I've enjoyed at least four of the five albums we listened to so far immensely. Um, you know, does there need to be five albums in the top 20? Um, and when, as we've discussed, so many albums and artists on this list are really here, or we feel they're here. They've been placed here because of their influence on a specific genre or other artists and not necessarily because of the album itself. So uh, I would like to see Nevermind a little higher. Um, I don't know if I'd put it top. I mean, oh, you know, if, if you're, if you take at par, you know, people from the six or, you know, regular people, people who listen to music from the sixties, from the seventies, from the eighties, from the nineties, from the two thousands, take all those people, you know, at par. I mean, I think everyone from the nineties is going to vote that this is one of the best albums from that decade. So, um, I think it's impressive, as you guys said, that it made it this far because it hasn't been around as long. It hasn't had the time to to mature as, you know, we say, well, Pepper's been around since 67 and it's still that good. So it's got to be higher than some of the good albums that came after it. So I think it's even more impressive. And I would use that as an argument that it should be even higher, that it's just so good, even though it hasn't been around as long. So. I'm okay with it at 17 and, you know, stacked up against bands like the Beatles and Bob Dylan. Um, yeah, that's, that's a, that's a tough group of, of prolific bands to crack. So at least one higher. <laughs> Is this the band where content saying represents our teenage years on a list like this? Uh, I think it represents a a generation of people that we're, you know, that that we're a part of. I think number one, 
you know, we're from Canada, so it's a little different. Like, you know, there might have been some Canadian bands that we would associate with Warren. I think that there might have been some bands that came a little after Nirvana that, but, but I think if we were five years older, yeah, yes, for sure. Um, I think this represents our teenage years fairly well. I mean, we certainly listen to them a lot. If not at home, certainly was around all the time. Are you, are you suggesting no? Um, You're not comfortable with this band representing our teen years? It just feels a little bit weird for me to say like, yeah, this is, you know, of all the music in the 90s, this is what makes the top 20. Okay, so I'm going to go in on a limb here, and I'm going to jump out on something that Mike just said. <laughs> For me, this album does not represent my teenage years. And that primarily comes from the fact that when it was released, we all were nine years old. And then Mike said, well, what if we were five years older? So the, right. the album yeah. that shapes my t- teenage years and represents me is five years older than this. And it's the Phoenix album from this album. And it's the color and the shape by the Foo Fighters. And that was released <laughs> in 1997. Yeah. No, I, I, I agree. And if I was going to pick an album for me, it would, it would be from right around that time, somewhere between probably 96 and 99. And you'd probably be naming albums like Smash or Dookie or... Um, Trouble, Trouble the Hen House. Yeah. Um, a little bit of Canadiana in there. Oh, well, for sure. <laughs> why not? Or, or even even an, al- an album I really liked that, Ben, I think you had this one too, is Beck's Odelay. Yeah. Um, one that I listened to a ton and, and Beck, you know, still went on to become a really, uh, that album's on this list actually. It's later, but. One of Weezer's, Weezer's early albums. Again, I, I just miss I just missed on yeah. Blue. Like blue, I was just a little young for. I got into blue later, um, but not in my teens. Yeah. And green again. I was you know like when green came out, I was well. I guess I was like eighteen, seventeen, eighteen when green came out. Um, but yeah, I think definitely, Foo Fighters, Tragically Hip, those more define my teen years. And of course, as Ben and I have discussed, and Rob, you're you're right in there. You know, Christian punk and ska we listened to a lot of that in the teens um so yep. there's a lot of those bands five iron frenzy and oc supertones and slick shoes and uh all those bands that definitely wore out my speakers <laughs> so i i would answer i yes i would say this this represents the 90s and teens in the 90s but i mean that could be people who are you know, close to 10 years older than us. And there's a huge gap there in terms of the culture that they grew up in. So I'm more comfortable with saying it represents teens in the nineties than us in the nineties. Cause we, I mean, we were still teens in the early two thousands. Rob, thank you so much for joining us. It was uh, really great to have you and, and just very natural to have, I think the three of us talked together and, uh, and great to hear your, your memories and your stories. And, uh, we hope that you'll join us again sometime, uh, when we have another one of your favorite albums on. I would absolutely love to join you again. Thanks for having me. Uh, 
Absolutely. Thanks, Rob. Um, we need to hang out this summer. Our annual uh, see each other every two to three years time yeah. is coming up here again. So Trying to eat a <laughs> three-pound burger together again. Oh, that sounds wonderful. <laughs> yeah, well, uh, I'll find a spot for that. Fantastic. Perfect. <laughs> what do we got coming out next time, Mike? Yeah, we hope that you'll join us again next time when we discuss album number 18 on Rolling Stone Magazine's Top 500 Greatest Albums of All Time list, which is Born to Run by the boss, Bruce Springsteen. If you like what you hear, subscribe on your favorite podcast app and write a review. Send us a message at our Facebook page, on Instagram, or through our SoundLogic Podcast Twitter feed. Thanks for listening.